I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And my guest today is Dr. Robert Oaken, who has published a book called Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street. When the opportunity arises, don't turn away from people who are homeless on the street. Engage them, try to find out about their lives. Take a few minutes, it doesn't take more than that and recognize that they are human beings like the rest of us and they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect and certainly have a right to have homes in the richest nation on earth and that if someone wants to do something to help call their congresspeople get their friends to call their congresspeople and demand that a budget be developed that ends the problem of homelessness now we live in a democracy and we need to use it. Dr. Robert Oaken was Chief of Service of the San Francisco General Hospital Department of Psychiatry, Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, and Vice Chair of the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine's Department of Psychiatry, where he oversaw the development of crucial services for San Francisco's most acutely and chronically mentally ill patients. Early in his career, Dr. Oaken was appointed Commissioner of Mental Health for Vermont and then for Massachusetts, where he led the development of community-based services for people who had previously spent years in public mental hospitals. He was one of the first commissioners to recognize the need for supportive housing for these people. Welcome, Dr. Oaken. Thank you very much. Pleasure and to be here. This is a book that is really a topic that is, I'm very, concerned about. Just a, a quick story to open. I, I've just graduated from CIAS, which is also in the um, South Emission District, and I went to class maybe two years ago, and it really struck me how there were homeless people sleeping on the street in front of high-rise, half-million-dollar condominiums that were going up. So I'm really thankful that you've written this book. This is a book on, on the homeless, and you've interviewed a number of homeless people to get their stories. But tell us about yourself. You're a psychiatrist and you worked at San Francisco General Hospital, is that right? Yes, I was chief of psychiatry at San Francisco General Hospital for 17 years. Oh and before that, I was commissioner of mental health for the state of Vermont and then for the state of Massachusetts. So I've been concerned about the problems of the severely mentally ill for a very long time. So what really drew you to write this? Well, I started out uh, after I left my position at the hospital wanting to understand how people could survive the brutality of the streets. I was on one rainy night in San Francisco. I was hurrying to my car, and as I got into it, I saw a homeless woman lying on the street, completely sopping wet. And I thought to myself, how is she going to get through this night? How is she going to get through the next day and the next night with nothing to look forward to except more cold and more rain? Right. So her, the, her image really stuck with me. And I decided that I wanted to interview people on the street and find out how they managed, you know, what they did when they needed food, what they did when they needed clothes, 
what they did with their carts during the day, uh, how they stored their possessions, how they relieved themselves when there were no public bathrooms around. Uh, so that's how, that's how I started out. Mm -hmm. Obviously at the hospital, I had known these people from a clinical point of view, right. but I wanted to really know about them from a nitty gritty human point of view. So you knew these people from having been your patients, and you knew these patients from having come into your emergency room. Yes. How many people did you interview? I interviewed 43 people. Oh my goodness, that's quite a lot. Yeah. Well, after, after I started interviewing people and hearing their stories, I wanted to share them with a wider audience, and I decided to convert these interviews into a book and also take photographs of the people I was interviewing. So I asked people whether they would be willing to participate in this project. Oh, the, the, the homeless themselves. The homeless themselves. Yeah. And whether they would be willing to let me record their stories and photograph them as they were telling their stories to me. And though I expected to be just completely shut down and uh, dismissed. In fact, people were very welcoming and about 70% of the people I asked were willing to participate. My goodness, that's really... Well, I guess it's not surprising. I mean, people on the street must be awfully lonely, actually. Well, loneliness is, in fact, one of the big problems that people face on the street, in addition to boredom and in addition to the feeling of total invisibility and powerlessness. One of the things that I like that you do is go through a history of the homeless. First of all, what is homelessness? I mean, certainly we see people on the street, but they're there for all different reasons. Yes, so the people that we see sleeping on the street are a subset of homeless people about I would say 40% of homeless people who have no shelter whatsoever. The other 60%, which are often, who are often families or parts of families, have some kind of shelter, but it's very, very temporary. It's very insecure. It's often inhospitable. So staying temporarily with friends or relatives or sleeping in a car or some other sheltered place, but barely so. The next question I have is, when is a person considered mentally ill? Well, there is a... this is a big contributor to homelessness. Yes, yes, it is. I would say mental illness combined with poverty uh -huh. together make homelessness not inevitable, but it, but it makes it highly likely. Mm -hmm. Uh, mental illness, there's a, there is a, there are diagnostic criteria for different forms of mental illness, and I did not use the term mental illness in this book in a strict uh, technical yeah, I sense. I noticed that. Yeah, but rather uh, in, a, in a somewhat looser sense, mm -hmm. uh, that basically to describe people who just for one reason or another absolutely couldn't make it. They had cognitive problems, behavioral problems, and emotional problems. Even if they didn't fit in neatly and nicely, 
to a specific category of mental illness. Like the DSM-5 or something. Like right. the DSM-5. Yeah, yeah, that's a diagnostical and statistical manual that yes. many uh, psychiatrists and psychologists use for diagnosing mental illness. Yes. So another question, how do other countries handle the mentally ill? Because I know it's, it's quite different in, yes. in the Scandinavian countries, for example. Yeah. So uh, most developed countries do not have a homeless uh, problem as we do. Uh, so yeah. So if you go to any place in Scandinavia or in France or in uh, Switzerland, you will not find a lot of homeless people on the street. And there are several reasons for that. One of the most important is that Western Europe has had a tradition of creating a, a rather robust social safety net right. where people are guaranteed a certain minimum income, uh, are helped to find housing, have universal health care. So it's very different than in the United States with its uh, emphasis on individuality and making it on your own and uh, a real, uh, I would say, a real distrust and a real blaming of people who can't make it on their own. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it strikes me as actually quite Dickensian. I mean, this might as well be England in the 1850s. Yeah. And it's in it's uh, in the way that we treat our homeless people. Certainly there's not children in factories. Yes, that's true, but in San Francisco alone, for example, there are 2,000 children and adolescents that have no permanent place to live. That's just stunning. I mean, and and one of the statistics you quote in the book that any one time there's in this country there's between what was it 750,000 to 2 million homeless at any one time. Yes. That's hard to imagine. Yeah, well, there's, there's argument about some of those figures. The, the, the figure that's given most often is a figure of about 650,000 homeless people in the United States. But that's a huge number of homeless people yeah. uh, in the richest country on earth. It's because our attitude toward individuality, I guess, this brings me to the next question. Could, it, could I add to that, please? please? Yeah, so one, I, I said there were really several factors that accounted for the difference between the United States and other developed countries. One of them is this, this uh, view about uh, and idealization of individuality oh, and making right. it on your yeah. own. Yeah. But a second is the history of deinstitutionalization in the United States and in Europe. In Europe, uh, many countries have really created alternatives to mental hospitals so that people can, who leave mental hospitals have some place to live and someone to take care of them. Then there are other countries in Europe that have a much higher mental hospital population than the United States does. So I would say for those three reasons, and maybe a fourth being that in some countries, uh, the family structure is much more tightly knit oh, than yes. in the United States. And families are much more involved in caring for their mentally ill relatives. So then it's, it's a, a, a different social orientation. Yes.
My goodness. A different social orientation, a very different culture, yeah. a very different attitude toward people who are having trouble making it on their own. For whatever reason. Yes, for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, going, you know, coming to the issue of reasons uh, <laughs> about, you know, the vast majority of people that I spoke to on the street had come from very impoverished neglectful and abusive backgrounds. Now, that's certainly not true of all people who are mentally ill and on the street. Right. Some of them come from families that just have given everything they have to take care of them. They've never given up. They've been brave. They've fought the political structure and so on. But of the people I interviewed on the street, 90, 95% had come from terrible backgrounds. Yeah, it was striking in the number of, yeah. uh, of stories about physical, sexual, emotional abuse. Yeah. And there's really no recourse for these folks. No, they were dealt a bad hand right from birth. Some mm -hmm. of them were biologically vulnerable to mental illness or substance abuse. Uh, they were not really taken care of as children. They began to develop symptoms early on in their lives. They fell behind in school. They entered adolescence trying to treat the emotional pain of their childhoods with hard street drugs and fell behind further in high school, often dropped out of high school, and entered adulthood with no employable skills. Becoming homeless and to some extent mentally ill was uh, almost inevitable for some of them. We're going to have to take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and I'm talking with my guest, Dr. Robert Oaken, and he's written a book called Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street, about the homeless in San Francisco primarily. And how can people contact you, Dr. Oaken, and how can they get the book? They can go to my website, which will lead them to uh, a number of tabs, one of which is uh, to Amazon, and they can buy the book right from Amazon. My website is Robert Oaken, O-K-I-N-M-D.com. And I think it's very important for people to know that you're donating all of the proceeds from your book to homeless organizations. Yes, all the profits that I make from the book are gonna to go to homeless organizations. Yeah. We'll take a short break and be right back, so stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're here with my guest, Dr. Robert Oaken, who has written a book called Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street, about primarily the homeless in San Francisco. And before the break, Dr. Oaken, you were talking about the causes of homelessness. I think the thing I'd like to ask, uh, you did, what was it, 43 interviews? Yes. Of, with various homeless people. What insights, what key insights do you have from having done these interviews? Well, the thing that struck me most, besides how welcoming uh, these people were and how willing they were to talk about their lives, was how close to the surface their grief was and regrets about their lives and how much they tended to blame themselves for it. I wasn't expecting that. So with your education as a psychiatrist, you have a context to understand how these people have come to this, but th does this then play into this cultural ideal about uh, individuality 
and people supposed to be able to take care of themselves. Is that right? Yes. I mean, does this play into? Yes, it, it, it definitely plays into why people blame themselves for factors that are, I, I would say, largely out of their control, but I'll, I want to come back to that. Uh, they have internalized this idea that if you don't make it in this country, you're at fault. My goodness, yes, please speak more about that. Well, there was one particular person that put this most succinctly. He said to me, if you have a big nose, well, it's nothing to be ashamed of. You were just born with it. But if you've lost all your teeth, oh, then I remember seeing it, this story. Yes, it shows that you're a real screw-up. And nothing but a screw-up. And that the idea being that you've brought this on yourself. Mm -hmm. You've brought homelessness on yourself. You've brought the infections that you catch on the street that lead to people losing their teeth on yourself. And you have no one but yourself to blame. In the course of your medical practice, have you talked to homeless in other countries to see what kind of feeling they have about themselves? Uh, a more supportive system? Well, in a more supportive system, by and large, homelessness doesn't exist. That's just striking. So that people will understand that they're ill, but there is such a safety net yes. that their needs are thought about and well met. Right, and they tend not to blame themselves for it. Uh -huh. I want to come back to the issue of blame. Please. Because uh, it's very common to pass someone on the street who's drunk or who's high and who's obviously been taking drugs to, to come to the conclusion that they're their own worst enemies and you know they got themselves here and um, uh, if they wanted to enough they would pull it together and be able to climb out of homelessness. One of the striking things is that when you, when you really hear about their backgrounds, you can absolutely understand why they're taking drugs. Yeah. And once they've hit the streets, it's even clearer why they're taking drugs because it's very hard to survive on the streets without some form of relief or comfort. And they unfortunately choose a comfort that makes things worse. But it's not like they have many options. One person said to me, you have to either be crazy or high to survive on the streets. And I could really understand that. You know, I, I decided one day that I was going to accompany someone who was panhandling on the exit to a highway. And I stayed with him for about six hours and uh, about 25,000 cars passed. He made about a dollar every thousand cars. So rain or shine, hot weather or not, that's what he made. And anybody who thinks panhandling is the easy way out ought to try it even for an hour. It is so tedious, it's so boring, it's so demoralizing that just that alone, forget the physical effort, right. that alone uh, would make you just give it up in a moment. Well, and you know, there's a 
a friend of mine who lives in West Marin County, and she, one of her missions in life nowadays, she's an older woman, and she collects uh, clothing for the homeless and donates it to them. And I asked her, you know, when I see a panhandler, I mean, I feel terrible uh, about these people, and I want to know what I can do. And I don't know that I necessarily want to give them money because I don't want them to buy drugs or, or booze. She said something just striking to me that just, I couldn't believe it. She said, give them socks, new socks, tube socks. And I went, that's just brilliant because the Salvation Army uh, and the Goodwill don't sell underclothing. And I have since given socks to numerous homeless and Many people will come to me and say, how did you know? So that's just a small expression about what I think one of the things that, that can be done as an act of human kindness. Yeah, acts of human kindness can be so simple and it's so, they can be so easy to do. Uh, I always travel with some extra socks actually. <laughs> Because, <laughs> I, because I know that people who are homeless spend a lot of time walking from one side of the city to another. And if you ever look at their feet, I have a picture of yeah. their feet in, in one of the uh, uh, parts of the book. But their feet are just absolutely beaten up, often infected, yeah. especially if they have illnesses like diabetes. Oh, boy. Well, we're coming up on another break. Uh, I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest, Dr. Robert Oaken, who is a psychiatrist, and he's written a book called Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street. And how can people contact you, Dr. Oaken, and how can they find the book? Yes, they can, they can find the book on Amazon just by typing in my name, Robert Oaken, and they could go to my website, to see some of the photographs that I've taken and some of the narratives. Uh, and my website is robertokinmd.com. And I think it's really important for people to know that uh, all the proceeds you're getting from the sale of this book are going to the homeless. We're going to take a short break and be right back, so stay tuned. Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're here with my guest, Dr. Robert Oaken, and he has written a book called Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street. And before the break, Dr. Oaken, we were talking about acts of human kindness to the homeless and what it's like to panhandle and the importance actually of socks. You talked a little bit about this, about what it's like to live homeless and the cycle of homelessness. And would you talk about the shift from hospitals to jail for the homeless? In this country, we deinstitutionalized our mental hospitals uh, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And money and services were supposed to follow people out of the hospital. And sometimes it did, and a lot of times it didn't, and the result was that we had a, a very fragile population without services. 
when housing became gentrified and economic cycles fell, people who were fragile and just tenuously uh, functional fell through the cracks and became homeless. And many people have ended up in jail. And many people have ended up in jail. So Which they are ended completely up completely ill-equipped. Yeah, they basically ended up in three places. Older people ended up in nursing homes. Uh, many people ended up in jail, and many people ended up on the streets. Those were the, by and large, the three bad places they ended up. Now, some of them ended up in rooms that were admittedly poor. Uh, but at least they had a shelter, they had a roof over their heads. Mm -hmm. And then many people left the mental hospitals, people who were better, better at functioning, and they just blended into the, to the ordinary population. We don't see the successes of the institutionalization, we just see the failures. Oh, yeah. And by the way, in California, uh, the release of people from mental hospitals was just dramatic. Uh, Ronald Reagan virtually opened the doors and pushed them out without services, without any organization, without housing, uh, without psychiatric care, with virtually nothing. And that's one of the reasons that we have such a large population of homeless people in cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles. Well, and this is a relatively warm weather state. I'm from the Midwest, from Minnesota, and it was striking to me, I moved here almost 20 years ago, and you can imagine the plight of homeless in sub-zero weather, but there were many fewer of them. Minnesota tends to be a primarily Scandinavian uh, Lutheran, and, and certainly there's uh, Irish Catholic and German, but there seems to be a, a greater social sensibility for uh, vulnerable, uh, populations. Where, where is that that you describe? Oh, in Minnesota. In Minnesota. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. So it was striking to me to arrive, I first moved to Santa Cruz, and it was striking to me to see in 1996 how many homeless people there were yeah. and how, you know, if you could, could you talk a little bit about how municipalities have attempted to work with these populations? Yeah, well, Different cities have approached this problem in different ways. Uh, uh, cities alone really can't solve this problem because housing is expensive. And unless the federal government participates in a major way, many cities are just not going to be prepared to deal with this problem. And uh, the federal government has has cut subsidies for low-income housing uh, a number of years ago, and it's just starting to come back up. So, Oh, the subsidies are starting yeah, to come back up? Yes. Okay, from uh, President Obama being in office? Well, they started to come up actually during the Clinton and Bush years. Okay. It's really quite striking about the, the deinstitutionalization of this population. And also, other states are sending their homeless to us. You yes. know, uh, you hear the stories of 
uh, people in Nevada and, and Utah being given a bus ticket to San Francisco, right. Right. and they arrive here and don't know anyone and right. uh, add to the, the population. Right. A actually, uh, I understand, though I haven't verified this, that about 40% of the homeless people in San Francisco were homeless before they came to San Francisco. Now, I don't know if that figure is true, oh, but that's goodness. what's reported. Yeah. So it seems like there is a migration of homeless people uh, into San Francisco. But suffice it to say that San Francisco also gives people bus tickets. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Yes. So there's a, there's a, a war of bus tickets. Oh, gosh. And that's why the federal government really has to step in and do much more. This is more than a local more. problem. Yeah, otherwise people will homeless people will just move to whatever city is providing the most services and whichever city is the warmest. Yeah, well, and that, that brings me about the laws about the homeless, uh, that people can't sit on the street or lie on the sidewalk or uh, yes. there's some striking things. Yeah. Could you talk a little about that? Well, there are about 30 or 40 cities in the United States that have passed what's called sit-lie laws. Mm -hmm. They, and San Francisco is one of them. Uh, they were passed in order to prevent people from sitting or lying on the sidewalk and uh, allegedly interfering with commerce uh, I actually had an experience myself one Sunday on Market Street. Uh, I was kneeling down talking to a homeless woman, uh, and a police officer came by and told us we weren't allowed to be there. So I said, well, where, I mean, I, I can go to my car and back to my home. Where is she right. supposed to go right. if she can't sit or lie? Well, apparently uh, she she's allowed to sit or lie on a park bench, but not on, uh, not on a sidewalk. Mm -hmm. oh, and nice. I asked him, well, hold it, why? And he said, well, uh, it, uh, she's interfering with pedestrian traffic. It was a Sunday. Uh, Market Street has huge sidewalks, as you know. There was hardly anyone on the sidewalk. And these laws are enforced very in a very haphazard kind of way, and, ma and mainly in the hate, I should say. But we were in Market Street when this happened. And I know there was a law passed so that the homeless cannot panhandle on the medians of uh, Van Ness, for example. Yes. Um, because this is a, a real sincere, difficult problem. I think people... When, when, when people pass someone who's panhandling, in addition to thinking they're taking the easy way out, I don't think that they realize how hard it is to get a job once you've become homeless. It's hard to get a job because there's uh, no place to put your cart when you go in and uh, uh, interview for a job. And the cart is You're the thing that holds every they possession They have all their have. possessions in their cart. Yeah. They're, they're, they're moving their possessions every moment of the day. Mm -hmm. Secondly, they're dressed often in rags. And in many layers. And many layers. So that no one will take 
something if they're too warm. Right. So employers seeing them in rags basically say, you know, I'm not taking this guy, especially when I have other options. Uh, they don't have a contact number, obviously. They don't have a cell phone right. where they can, where the employer can get back to them. It's, it's extremely difficult to get a job when you're trying to get it from the streets. And, and employers are not paying casual labor with cash. Right. I wonder, you know, and, and we can maybe go into this further after the break, but I, I wonder how many of my audience really understand what it is like to live homeless. Well, I used to come home at the end of a day of interviewing people on the streets, and I would have a lump in my throat just imagining what their night was going to be like compared to what my night was going to be like. I was going into a house, sleeping in a comfortable bed, and if they were lucky, they would be sleeping over a heating grate. Did you find many educated adults out well, there? Or? Yeah, I, I found many smart people out there. Oh, thank you for the differentiation there. Yeah, by and large, they hadn't been educated. Mm -hmm. uh, often they had dropped out of high school and they weren't, they hadn't been formally educated, but many were really smart. And could, well, they kind of had the B, they got uh, the colloquial street smart. You know? Well, beside being street smart, they were smart, you know, many of them were smart in other ways. Mm -hmm. They knew what was going on in the world, they had, a, they had opinions about politics, uh, the, you could absolutely hold a conversation with them. And yet, again, to say that some of the coping mechanisms were drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Yes. Even though they were smart, they couldn't get it together to get through the various bureaucracies that they needed to get through to get support. So getting through the uh, welfare bureaucracy, for example, to get on SSI was you know, often extremely difficult for them. They were often turned down because they didn't have the right paperwork, because they didn't have a doctor to vouch for them, and so on and so forth. Oh, and if it's a circular. It's a circular process. Kafkaesque sort of thing. Often those who needed it most were least likely to be able to get it. And then to get housing was even more difficult. The waiting list for housing is very, very long. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them just gave up on the system. And the quality of the housing is not terribly high, and there's problems with that as well. Right. My goodness. So I guess the thing that I want to know to put a little bit more positive view on this, can you talk about the resilience that you saw? Yeah. Uh, a lot of the people were, frankly, much more resilient than I am. I don't think that I could have lasted on the streets. I, I don't think I would have had the emotional endurance to do it. Uh, if I felt I couldn't climb out of hopelessness, I honestly think that I would have killed myself. Uh, it's such a brutal life, and I was filled with admiration for people who put one foot in front of another day after day after day, but going nowhere. 
with nothing to look forward to, with no end in sight. So talking about resilience, uh, some of them put one foot in front of the other because they were resilient, others for other reasons. Right. And yet, it sounds to me from what you're talking about that even if a person had a strategy, a step-by-step -step strategy of trying to take care of various criteria necessary to move out of this cycle of homelessness, that those, those criteria were really difficult to meet sometimes. Yes. And the, the, the other thing that's striking to me, you, you see people on the streets with pets. Yes. That's, and not as often but with kids, but I'm, I think the kids are probably removed from the homeless uh, by social services and placed with foster families. Yes. But talk to us about homeless with pets. Yeah, well, a pet is often a, a living thing that gives you unconditional love. And, uh, you know, for many of these people, this is the only unconditional love that they've ever gotten. They didn't get it as children. They don't get it as adults. And so having a pet is a precious commodity. In fact, I can tell you a story of one man who uh, was able to get the help of a social worker from a program at the San Francisco General Hospital. The social worker helped him get through the housing bureaucracy and get supported housing. But he still maintained his drug habit. Uh, the social worker and I decided to get him a pet. I took him to the uh, animal shelter and got him a kitten. And two months after he got this kitten, after a 10-year hard drug habit, he gave up drugs. And when I asked him, you know, how in the world did that happen? He said, well, I finally had something to love and to take care of and something who loved me and needed me. And I wasn't going to continue my drug habit under those circumstances. And he just stopped cold turkey. That's astounding. That's really remarkable. My goodness. We'll talk a little more after the break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And we're here with my guest, Dr. Robert Oaken, who has written a book called Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street. And how can people contact you, Dr. Oaken, and how can they get the book? They can go onto Amazon and get the book just by typing in Robert Oaken once they've got on the Amazon site. And they can go to my website, Robert Oaken, O-K-I-N-M-D.com, where they can find some of the narratives of people I've interviewed and some of the photographs so that they can get a feel for the book before they decide whether they they want to buy it or not. And I think it's important uh, to mention again that all the proceeds from the sale of this book are going to go to homeless organizations. Yes. And I regard the book as having been heavily co-authored by the people that I interviewed. Oh, that's great. I mean, it is true that I put it together and right. it's true that I bracketed the body of the book with an extended introduction and a conclusion, but the body of the book is it consists of transcribed interviews of 
people speaking in their own voice and photographs of them telling me their stories. Well, we'll take a short break and be right back, so stay tuned. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're here with my guest, Dr. Robert Oaken, and he has written a book called Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street. And before the break, Dr. Oaken, we were talking about uh, how one of the homeless people you had interviewed that had a 10-year drug habit uh, decided to quit his drug habit after you and another caseworker got him a kitten and someone it was a, a creature to love and to, to be loved by. Yes, I'm not saying that kittens are the cure for a hard drug abuse habit, but I just use that to illustrate how sometimes very small interventions mm -hmm. can help people if they're targeted, kind, and uh, come at the right time. Well, and it seems to me that there are a lot, there's, this is such a complex experience for the individual, but also for cities and our culture. But there are a consistent number of factors that point in a positive direction or a negative direction. And when the, when the negative factors get overwhelming, people are out on the street, but they can begin to turn these around. And uh, during our break, you mentioned that this is a solvable problem. And I did see that in the book, you speak about case management. Yes. What do we do about this? What, uh, you know, the, the, there are listeners to my show uh, who I'm sure are, are deeply concerned as I am about this. And what do we do? Well, I think there are two kinds of actions we can take. One is just simple acts of human kindness. Uh, it's not going to solve the problem, but it's... I mean, greeting people on the street as human greeting, beings. Greeting people in the street as human beings and seeing that behind their rags and behind their carts and behind the stigmata of poverty are human beings that have many of the same feelings we do, fears and hopes and dreams and regrets and grief. Uh, so just treating them as human beings and not as invisible impediments on the street is something that we can do very easily. Uh, and if more and more people choose to do that simple thing, it's going to change. The, well, the thing that will really change the situation of homelessness in the United States is at the ballot box. That's where the fight needs to be joined. Yeah. So, you know, acts of human kindness are just that. They're not going to solve the problem of homelessness. Right. What will solve the problem of homelessness is people calling their congresspeople and demanding that a budget be created at the federal level, at the state level, and at the local level that uh, provides supportive housing and case management. With those two interventions alone, uh, a lot of the problem of homelessness uh, and homelessness among the mentally ill can be solved. And I know that, that, that uh, housing projects for the poor have been attempted and gotten to be not well managed. Right. Uh, so those need to be also, uh, these solutions need to be well managed. 
They need to be well managed, and I think congregating whole groups of people with similar uh, disabilities in one place is not the best solution. They need supportive housing, but that's different than throwing them all into a tenement house and oh, yeah. basically abandoning them, because that simply creates another institution, though by a different name. Would you say then uh, small population group homes? Small population in, group homes. In various and, neighborhoods? Yes. Of course, that would take an, a different an orientation of that neighborhood to welcome these people yes. as uh, compassionate supporters of the uh, halfway house like this. Right, or, which is one of the home. reasons that I wrote the book. Uh, I, oh. I wanted to destigmatize this population so that the public would accept them into society as well as vote to get services for them. Well, and it strikes me, anyone who is living in this culture, unless they, <laughs> they happen to be in the 1% of the 1% is not so far away from this condition. That is very true. So yeah, economic reverses knock families into the street and knock the most uh, tenuously uh, adapted people into the street. Would you say that additional, I know this goes to case management, but would you say additional support to institutions would help? Or what's this, I mean, because uh, you said a lot of people had been turned out of institutions the institution, it's that, the institutionalization is not necessarily the answer. Institutionalization is not the answer. Okay. The answer to homelessness is a home. <laughs> it's kind of yeah. ridiculous and obvious to say that, but it's amazing how other things have been tried, and it's only in the last 10 years, I would say, that it's been recognized that it's very hard for people to deal with their substance abuse habit, very hard for people to deal with their mental illness without a home. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. We do have a few minutes left. I guess the thing that I, if someone's just tuning in about, we are, we've been talking with Dr. Robert Oaken about his book, The Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street. If somebody's just tuning in, what would you say what, if, if people are going to leave with just one thing, what would you have people understand about this process, about what we can do, how we can maybe plant seeds in our culture to shift how we deal with those least fortunate of us? Well, I would say when the opportunity arises, don't turn away from people who are homeless on the street. Engage them, try to find out about their lives. Take a few minutes, it doesn't take more than that. And recognize that they are human beings like the rest of us and they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect and certainly have a right to have homes in the richest nation on earth. And that if someone wants to do something to help call their congresspeople, get their friends to call their congresspeople, and demand that a budget be developed that ends the problem of homelessness now. We live in a democracy, and we need to use it. 
Oh, thank you for being with us. I really appreciate uh, talking with you. And, you know, this, I think, is going to go a long way to help those listeners who have listened to what we've been talking about today overcome our initial discomfort from the people who have had such a difficult time. So, again, uh, this is Anthony Wright, and I've been your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest, Dr. Robert Oaken, who has written a book called Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street. And how can people contact you, and how can people get the book? So people can go to my website at robertokinmd.com, and there, there's uh, a link to Amazon, which uh, will make it very easy to purchase the book. The book is relatively inexpensive, and all the proceeds are going to homeless advocacy organizations. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Dr. Oaken. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement. And thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.